Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 5 tonight. These first six chapters of the book of Jeremiah have all been God laying out his case against Judah and against Israel because he is about to bring the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, down on them. And he is making sure that they understand, through Jeremiah the prophet, that they understand their guilt. However, as we continue through the book, what you will see is that they don't understand it. And in fact, in chapter 5, You're going to hear God in mocking them say that they've denied him and said he doesn't know what he's talking about. Misfortune's not going to come on us. We're not going to see the sword or the famine. And the prophets are just blowing wind. They don't know what they're talking about. So you've got guys like Ezekiel and Jeremiah out there saying, repent, change, because the Lord is about to punish you. And people are just in denial of it. The first part of chapter 5 is God really kind of summarizing his case against Jerusalem. The second half of the chapter is God saying what he's going to do about it. However, what you'll notice is that in both sections of chapter 5, as God is saying that he is going to punish Jerusalem, one of the real important things that he says twice in this chapter, is that he is not going to bring about a total end of them. Now, this is the same God who has the ability to destroy people groups off the face of the earth, even erase them to history. And yet, to Jerusalem, who he has repeatedly said are very, very guilty, he nevertheless is going to be faithful to the promises that he has made to the forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, but then also he's going to be consistent in the promise that he has made to King David and importantly to the tribe of Judah, that out of the tribe of Judah is going to come the Messiah. And so the tribe of Judah cannot be utterly destroyed until Messiah actually comes to the planet. So even though God is going to punish them and even though it's within his power to destroy them from the earth, destroy them from history, as he has done so many other people groups. He promises them, this is not going to be an utter destruction. I'm not going to wipe you out. He promises to keep a remnant, which is something that we see consistently from God all the way through the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation, that even then, God always has his remnant of his people of Israel, who consistently he is going to preserve until he brings them to the new Jerusalem. So so Jeremiah, again, is demonstrating a very consistent personality profile of God. And in fact, one of the things that God is going to say in chapter 5 about Jeremiah is that Jeremiah had come to know the ways of God. Even when God was taking 
Israel through their 40-year journey out of Egypt, we read that the people saw the actions of God, the people saw the activities of God, but that Moses knew his ways. He came to know God. He came to know what God was like. And that is also what Jeremiah is learning here, is not only what God is going to do, but what God is like, what the character of God is, and why he moves the way he does. But then along the way, as we're going through chapter 5, we're also going to see one of the most remarkable defenses of God from God's own tongue. You know, when we talk about God, when we're trying to present God to other people, it's very common to speak of God in terms of what he has done for us individually. Let me tell you what God has done for me. God doesn't speak that way. God speaks in these huge grand terms like, look, I know the name of every single star. He speaks of his creation as the demonstration of who he is and that he exists so that nobody has any kind of excuse. He's going to do that again in chapter 5. He's going to say that he is responsible for the water coming right up to the shore and not being able to come any further. Something that we really don't think much about, and yet it is thematic in the Old Testament that as God is demonstrating his sovereignty, his power, his authority, one of the things he points to is the way that the earth functions. The planet itself functions because that's the way God made it. And he takes the time to point that out and say, that works because I'm making it work. So when God is defending himself, he goes for the really big stuff. So let's start chapter 5. As I said, these first six chapters are all just God laying out his case. When we finally get to chapter 7 in two weeks, then we will start to see some of the narrative that makes up the story of Jeremiah. But the book begins with this elongated defense of God and also accusation and judgment against Israel. So God starts by saying to Jeremiah, go look for yourself. I'm not making any of this stuff up. Chapter 5, verse 1, roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look and take note and seek in her open squares. In other words, go to her large marketplaces and stuff and go see if you can find a man. If there is one who does justice and seeks truth, then I will pardon her. Sort of like God talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham argued with him and said, if you can find 50 just men, will you still destroy the city? He said, I won't do it for 50. Abraham got him all the way down to five. And he said, okay, if I can find five, I won't do it. And then he sent the angel to get Lot and his family, took them out of the city, and then destroyed the city. Same thing here. God is saying, go look around Jerusalem and see if you can find even one fair, honest man who deals in justice and who seeks truth. And if you can find that one guy, then I'll pardon all of Jerusalem. Of course, we know the outcome, which is that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, did indeed come down on Jerusalem and destroy the city and the temple. So apparently, Jeremiah was unable to find that guy. And then verse 2 says, they say things like, 
as the Lord lives. Now, this is a very common Hebraism that was a way of swearing, a way of testifying, the way of saying, I will do this as the Lord lives. You can count on me to do this. Although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. They're swearing by the name of God, and then they turn around and do their dastardly deeds, even though they have been using the name of God. That is what it is to use the name of the Lord in vain. Verse 3, O Yahweh, do not your eyes look for truth? Thou hast smitten them. In other words, you have punished them before, but they did not weaken. Thou hast consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they have refused to repent. Then Jeremiah is going to say in the next verse that he assumed that when God said there was nobody right, nobody fair, nobody just, that God had to have been talking about the poor people. He had to be talking about the desperate people. So then Jeremiah went and talked to the leaders, and he found out that the leaders were just as corrupt, and that, in fact, there was nobody who dealt honestly and fairly. That's verse 4. And then I said, they are only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way, the actions, the character of Yahweh. Or do they know the ordinance of their God? So then he says, since they're ignorant and they don't know the ordinance of God, I'm going to go to the leaders. I'm going to go to the priests. I'm going to go to the judges. I'm going to go to the people who ought to know the ways of God because they know the law. They know the ordinances of God. I will go to the great and I will speak to them for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. So truly, there's nobody in Jerusalem. As Jeremiah examined Jerusalem among the poor and among the great, there was nobody who knew the ways of God, who was following after the ordinances of God. And therefore, verse 6 says, Therefore, a lion from the forest will slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn to pieces because, here's the summation, because their transgressions are many and their apostasies are numerous. So that's really the essential, that Jerusalem is full of people who are not following the ways and the ordinances of God. Therefore, God is going to bring down a wild creature on them who he likens to a lion and a wolf and a leopard. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about the armies of Babylon who are going to come in and truly, genuinely tear them to pieces. And God says it's because their transgressions and their apostasies are so many. And then God asks the question, why should I pardon you? Just give me one good reason. Why should I forgive you? Given the way that you are, given the way that you have transgressed against me, even though I've revealed myself to you, even though I have given you my law, even though I have shown you the ordinances and the way that you ought to live as a community of people before me, 
and you all collectively have not done it, why, why should I forgive you? Why should I pardon you? Your sons, your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those which are not gods. And when I had fed them to the full, so God is saying, I took care of you. I brought you to a land of milk and honey. I gave you rain. I gave you plenteous crops. You're not lacking in anything. And yet, when I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery. They went chasing after other gods, after foreign gods. And they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house. They were like well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Quite a description of what it is to be adulterous. And God is the one who gave them the strength, who gave them the food, who gave them the ability to walk around like well-fed horses. But they were well-fed, lustful horses, each one neighing and whinnying after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Go up through her vine rows, through her vineyards, and destroy. But do not execute a complete destruction. Strip away her branches, for they are not Yahweh's, they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord. And they have said, now the NASB translates it, not he, which is quite literally what it says. What it means is he is not. He does not exist. We don't have anything to worry about from him. So they've lied about Yahweh and said, he is not, and misfortune will not come on us. We're not going to suffer. Look how good we're doing. Everything's working our way. And we will not see the sword or famine because they thought they were abundant and they thought that they were powerful and they thought they could defend themselves. And as for the prophets who would come to them and say, this is the word of the Lord, and he is going to punish you, and he is going to bring about your enemies upon you, verse 13, they would say, and the prophets are as wind. They're just hot airbags, just coughing out stuff that doesn't ever come true. And the word is not in them, so thus it will be done to them. Now, starting at verse 14, we kind of get into this second half of the chapter, which is God saying, and this is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to do in order to judge you. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, all of that, he is not, his prophets don't know what they're talking about, calamity's not going to come on us. Because you've said all that, behold, I am making my words in your mouth, speaking to Jeremiah, I'm making my words in your mouth fire, and I am making this people wood so that it will consume them. So the people say the prophets are full of empty wind. 
God says, I'm going to make the words that come out of your mouth fire, and it's going to destroy them. In other words, the things that you actually say are going to occur, are going to happen, and these people are going to fall under judgment and destruction, even though they don't believe you. And of course, as we continue through the book of Jeremiah, you're going to see that he hits just constant pushback from the people. They refuse, they punish him, they won't believe him. 30 years he's at it, doesn't have any converts, nobody wants to believe, and yet he's right all the way through because God has said, I'm going to make my words in your mouth a fire. I'm going to make this people wood, and it's going to consume them. Here's what he's talking about. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you don't know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver, which is the place where they would keep their arrows in order to shoot plenteous arrows during their wars, their quiver is like an empty grave. In other words, they're going to kill wildly, and their quivers are going to be seemingly bottomless because they're just going to kill everywhere. Their quiver is like an open grave, and all of them are mighty men. And they will devour your harvest and your food. Remember a minute ago they said, uh, no, that's not ever going to happen to us. So now God declares, they will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. And yet, look at verse 18, and yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. So here you see the severity of God and the faithfulness of God crammed into one prophecy. The judgment of God is absolute. God is going to punish his people correct his people, put them back on the right path. And he's going to punish them bad. He has just described the fact that there's going to be massive bloodshed and death. They're going to have no harvest, no food. Their sons and daughters are going to be killed. Their flocks, their herds, their vines, their fig trees, even their fortified cities are going to fall. It sounds like a pretty complete destruction. And yet, God says in his faithfulness, even in those days, even when that is happening, I still will not make a complete destruction out of you. I'm going to maintain that remnant of you because I have to continue the bloodline from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, particularly to Judah, until Shiloh comes. Because that's already been predicted. That's set in stone. That has to happen. Therefore, God is not going to make a complete destruction of them. Verse 19, and it shall come about that when they say, why has the Lord our God done these things to us? Which is really going to be interesting because God is saying it's going to be so bad and it's going to be just exactly like my prophets have described that when it happens to my people, the very same people who have been saying he doesn't exist, when it actually happens, they're going to say, 
He is God and he is our God. And now why is he doing this to us? God is going to demonstrate who he is and what he's like through judgment as much as he ever does through grace or through blessings or through his kindness. He is going to reveal himself yet again to Israel by the way he judges them. And the outcome is going to be that they're going to recognize him and then they're going to say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? And then you shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Okay, quick question. Did that happen? Yeah, and these are the people who are the descendants of those who served for 400 years in Egypt. You'd think they would have learned something. They would know that the history of God, if they understood God or his ways at all, the history of God is that he's perfectly willing to put his people into bondage for 400 years. That's the kind of God you're dealing with. And so then as they reject him and chase their foreign gods and commit their adulteries, and then he judges them, and they say, why? why? Why are you judging us? All he has to say is, who am I? What God am I? I'm, I'm the real God before whom you're supposed to tremble, and you haven't been trembling, and now I'm going to teach you to tremble all over again by making you serve yet again. I have the power to do this. When they say, why has the Lord God done all these things to us? You say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, hear this, O foolish and senseless people. Who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but hear not. We should all be familiar with that language by now. People who have physical eyes and yet seem to have no understanding of what they're looking at, no comprehension of God or his word. People who have physical ears and yet don't hear the word of God, don't hear the obvious things that God is speaking through his creation. Do you not fear me, says verse 22? Do you not fear me? Do you not tremble in my presence? That's what God expects. He expects people to reverence him, and he expects people to tremble before him because he knows who he is. He knows his power. He knows his authority. He knows his sovereignty. He knows that he deserves worship. He knows that he's the only holy one. He knows he's the only self-existent one. And he expects his creatures to get down on their face in front of him and tremble before him. But what happens far too often in the course of human history is that people become familiar. And through familiarity, they start thinking, well, you know, God's been really patient really long-suffering, so we, he's probably not going to do anything about this. He may not even be there. We don't know. And so that is the exact opposite. That kind of ambivalence toward God is the exact opposite of what God requires of people. He requires reverence and fear from them. He requires that they tremble in his presence. 
And then he defends himself. This is the place that I was talking about in the introduction to this chapter. He is now going to describe himself based on not necessarily a personality or a characteristic. He's going to define himself by his power and say, you can look at the way the planet functions even now, and you can see that I am the one who has created it to function this way. How is it that you can look at my creation and look at this world and look at the way it works and not tremble? You've become too familiar. You just expect the sun to come up tomorrow. But if it does, it's because of the faithfulness of God. You just expect when you get a virus or something that you're, you're going to get better. You're going to heal. But you forget to thank God. You forget to tremble before God. He's the one who has made you fearfully and wonderfully. He's the one who has created you in such a way that you can endure things that really ought to kill you. You can look at the stars of the heavens. You can look at the way that gravity continues to work. You can look at the creation of God and the seasons that come and go. You can look at the rain in its season, and you can look at all the things that God has accomplished on this planet and the way that it works so perfectly, and you really ought to tremble before God when you see those things because they are all a demonstration of who he is and that he is still exercising his power to this very moment within his creation. So that's what he's getting at here in verse 22. Do you not reverence and fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea as an eternal decree so that it cannot cross over it. Okay, what is he talking about? Because this is something God brings up very frequently. The fact that there is dry land on planet Earth and that the waters can't go past where God has decreed they should be. Tom, if you would, look up Genesis 1. You're going to read verses 9 and 10. Micah, if you would... Turn to Job 38. You're going to read Job 38, verses 8 to 11. Jeff, if you would, turn to Psalm 104, and you're going to read verses 5 to 9. Steve, if you would, Proverbs 8, and you're going to read 27 to 30. Give me that reference again, please. I got distracted. Proverbs 8, 27 to 30 for you. Psalm 104, <laughs> 5 to 9, Jeff, back there. Micah, Job 38, 8 to 11, and we're going to start with Tom reading Genesis 1, 9 and 10. This is the creation story at the beginning of Genesis when God creates everything. Go. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. So as part of the creation, the earth was covered with water. God then by his power created dry land. And that is all part of God demonstrating his own power in the creation and separation of dry land where people would live and the seas where the fishes and ocean-bearing creatures would live. So God is the one who made that division. And he continues to take credit for the fact that he's the one who made that division. If you would, Micah, Job 38, 8 to 11. 
who would close the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said thus thus far shall you come but no further and there shall your proud waves stop so God said I set up doors and I said to the sea you can come this far and no further. Right there is where you stop. Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9, if you would, Jeff, nice and loud. He established the earth upon its foundations, so that it will not totter forever and ever. Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At thy sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which thou didst establish for them. Thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. So there was the deep, and it was covering the mountains. God said he made the mountains come up out of the water, so that there were mountains and valleys. And then he said to the deep that it was never again going to cover the land that way. So God continues to take credit for the fact that there is dry land on planet Earth. The way that planet Earth functions is because of God's power, God's authority, and he takes authority over water, for goodness sake, and tells water, you can come this far, and you can't come any further. Despite all of the global warming threats about how the entire East Coast was supposed to be underwater 10 years ago, and in it's not, gee, why would that be? It's because the word of God is true, and because the power of God is still at work, and he won't let the water come any further than the water is allowed to go. That's a really sovereign God, by the way. Steve, Proverbs 8, 27 to 30. And this is wisdom speaking and saying that wisdom was with God in all these things, in these beginning verses. But verse 27 says, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. God put limits on the sea. Wisdom, of course, says that, that I was with God. He is doing this through his own wisdom, through his own knowledge, through his own power, through his own authority. So now we've seen four verses that all predate Jeremiah in which God has taken credit for the fact that land and sea exist because that was his design and that it exists by his power, by his authority. Therefore, when he's talking to Jeremiah and saying that people ought to fear before him and ought to tremble in his presence, his presence is, is everywhere. If you're walking on his dry land, you're in his presence. If you're swimming in his waters, you're in his presence. If you're in his creation, you're in his presence, and you ought to be trembling in front of him. For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot cross over it. 
The water cannot cross over the sands of the beaches because God has already declared as an eternal decree that that's not going to happen. The dry land is going to continue. And though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. And though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. Why? Why can't they cross over it? Because God's in charge of water. Because that's how sovereign our God is. As often as I've said through the years, that there are no rebellious atoms anywhere in his creation, that everything continues to do exactly what he wants it to do, and exactly what he has designed it to do, he is sovereign over his creation. And I just don't think that there is a better example anywhere in the Old Testament than God himself saying, I'm in charge of water. Does water do what you say to do? No. Can you command water? God can. And though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. And though they roar, they cannot cross over it. Okay, so God is saying, I'm in charge of even water. I'm in charge of my creation. I'm in charge of the heavens. I'm in charge of everything. People ought to tremble in my presence as a result. They ought to fear and reverence me. Verse 23, but this people, Israel and Judah, has a stubborn and a rebellious heart. And they turn aside. And they left me. They departed from me. And they do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. There's God again saying, I'm the one in charge of seasons. I'm in charge of bringing rain. I'm the one who provides for you every single day of your life. So, You really ought to fear and reverence me considering that I'm in charge of everything you see, everything you experience, even the planet that you're walking on. I'm in charge of all of it. I created all of this. And from God's great big perspective, that is enough to hold all men guilty for not reverencing him. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord your God. Or the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest, your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. So God, who is in control of the rain and the harvest and the food, has already said, I'm going to withhold the rain, you're going to go hungry. And foreign armies are going to come in and destroy your vines and your harvests and your food because it's all up to God. By the way, here, let's check real quick. Anybody here in this room, uh, did anybody eat today? (laughs) I'm looking at many of you and thinking you probably did. Yeah. God did that, by the way. You might think McDonald's did that. But even the food preparers who put the food on the shelf that you went and bought, they had to go get God's stuff and put it on the shelf. God is the first cause and the supply of everything you have. And he expects reverence and worship as a result. 
Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld my good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. Those are people who trap birds. They watch like fowlers lying in wait, and they set traps to catch men. Like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. And therefore... They have become great and rich, and they are fat, and they are sleek or smooth, and they also excel in the deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, so that they may prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord. On a nation such as this shall I not avenge myself. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. People walking around claiming to have heard from God, who have not heard from God, who say things that God has never said. By the way, that's still going on to this very day. And the priests who are supposed to rule according to the law of God, the priests rule in their own authority. They lord their authority over men. They enrich themselves on the back of other people. And they hold their spiritual power over other people's heads in order to manipulate them. Does that sound familiar? That's kind of going on still today. The priests rule in their own authority. And on top of that, My people love it so much. The craziness of people. And it's still going on to this very day. You know, you can see things going on in religion these days, going on in church these days, going on on TV. And and I'm never surprised when I see some complete nut talking on TV or the Internet and saying things about God and the Bible that are just completely wrong, completely untrue. That doesn't surprise me because men are just so deluded in their own egos. I'm not surprised. What surprises me is, is that they have other people following them. And supporting them and keeping it going. And they end up building big edifices to themselves. And you see these things all over the country. God sees it. He not only sees, okay, my priests are wrong and my prophets are wrong. But then my people love it when these prophets tell them completely wrong things. Like, oh, you're going to be fine. God's not going to judge you. He doesn't care about your sin. He might not even be there. So don't worry, no calamity is going to befall you. You're going to have your best life now. Sound familiar? And God sees that the people love it, the people with their itching ears. They heap to themselves teachers who will flatter them and make them think that that when God looks at them, he just thinks they're a handful of aces. They're just doing great. You are wonderful people. When the Bible says, when God says, when the real prophets of God would say, no, actually, uh, you're depraved. Actually, you're sinful. Actually, you are a long way from the holy standard of God. People don't want to hear that. Well, that was true in Jeremiah's day. It's just as true to this very day. The reason I'm emphasizing it is because God right here says, I see it. I know it. I know what's going on. 
I recognize it. The prophets are prophesying falsely. The priests rule after their own authority, not mine. And the people love it so. But what are you going to do at the end of it? That's the key question. When the time for judgment comes, when the time comes to stand before God and be judged for how you lived and what you believed and what you said and what you did, what are you going to do then? It's very much like Jesus saying, what's a man going to give in exchange for his soul? You got nothing you're going to be able to exchange. And so whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Jesus, they all say the same thing, which is God has left himself ample evidence both of his existence and his power and his authority. Therefore, men ought to worship him, especially people who have had the amount of revelation of God that Israel had. They had his law. They had his priesthood. They had his Ark of the Covenant. They had God in their presence, and yet they went chasing after everything else that they could find. Well, here in America, I would certainly make the argument that we have been blessed like no other people group in the history of planet Earth as far as just access to the word of God. I mean, there's a church on every street corner. There's a Bible in every hotel room drawer. The Gideons have done a good job of that. And despite that, we just don't care about the things of God. We turn away from God. We think we're self-sufficient, and we don't see God in his creation. And when we do think about the things of God, we listen to prophets who are prophesying falsehoods, and we're listening to men who claim to be standing between us and God, and yet they're ruling in their own authority, and people with itching ears flock to that kind of stuff, and God is very aware of it. God knows that that's what's happening and has always been the way with human beings, and God's question is, yeah, but what are you going to do when it all wraps up? Because that day's coming. Judgment of God is coming. What are you going to do then? It's a little late. So should God judge Judah? Well, apparently so, because he's about to, and he's going to judge them bad. Does he have them dead to rights? Yes, he does. He had Jeremiah go out and look around Jerusalem, and God said, just find me one guy. Find me one, and I'll preserve her. And apparently that one couldn't be found. Among the poor, among the leaders, among the religious leaders, there was nobody who was acting according to God and his rules, his laws, and his ways. It's quite an indictment against Judah, but it's also quite an indictment against the world in which we live. You know, one of the uh, things that I observed while I was down in Texas, there is a movement right now going on in the world that I, I think is the absolute essence of narcissism which is people saying, uh, I am what I say I am. And now you have to react to me according to what I say I am. Even if all of the evidence is the contrary, you still have to react to me according to what I say I am. And only God has the right to say, I am that I am. Talk about the essence of narcissistic thought to say, 
I am what I say I am. And now you have to use my pronouns. Uh, it's absurd. God knows it. He's up in heaven. He's seeing it right now. But these are the kind of things that are happening right now on planet Earth that are just a stench in the nostrils of God. So when the time comes for God to bring about a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, is he right to judge these people? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And he has a history of doing it. And someday people are going to go, why is he doing this? A little late to ask that question. Comments, questions? Yes. When we were, um, last week when we were on the beach, uh, apparently doing research for this message. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, watching the water come right, right up to the beach. We were, uh, and we were there on, uh, watching the sunset and... We initially set our chairs down beach, and we I mean, the tide was all the way out. Um, but I think in the span of like 40 minutes or so, we had to move our chairs back four times because the tide was coming in. It was interesting watching it come in, like how quickly it was coming in, how much it was rising, and just getting the impression that you know there's so much water out there, and if it just moves a little bit, like it can come rushing in, you know, real quick. But then it's only allowed to go about 40 feet or so, and then it'll go back down. So there's that movement that those boundaries are exactly set, just like he's saying in there. And it can't, as much water as there is, it can't go any further than that small space he's determined on the beach, which is pretty incredible to think about. Isn't it nice when real life <clears throat> demonstrates how true the Bible is? Yeah. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that on there. It's like, how does it only get to go here when it can change so quickly, but it can only go within that span? Well, I think we saw five verses tonight that answer that question. Yeah. So, <laughs> like I said, research. <laughs> and then knowing that, you know, it's the lunar stuff. Right. Know, the lunar pole that does it. Right. Just think God putting, you know, the moon. Putting the moon in place. Control all of that. Yeah. yeah. Like he knows what he's doing. Listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.